0: hello everyone and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff bites podcast I'm your host Jerry me nee, joined as always by my faithful co-host Mr. Adam shear how's
1: it going Adam I am delightful Jerry how are you,
0: <laughs> you not not that you're delighted you're actually delightful you are <laughs> telling us <laughs> <You> are. <laughs> excellent excellent adam well we have a delightful guest on as well uh mr chris manila how's it going chris
2: it's going well it's a pleasure to be here with you guys thank you delightful even (laughs)
0: <laughs> delightful <thing. laughs> excellent uh well i think this is actually a first for the podcast because in the past we've had many guests who are industry experts and we've also had many guests that were former students to tell us about their experience this i think is the first time we have had an industry expert who also just happens to be one of our former students as well so uh you know crossing the venn diagram uh with you chris uh so i'm, I'm excited for today's episode
2: i'm excited too. I'm a uh, little uh, cautious with the uh, the expert label, but uh, we'll go with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have a very fancy website. That is uh, that is my my basis for uh, for industry experts. Uh, industry specialist, if, uh, if okay, you want to go, we'll go the, that. the hum- <laughs> humble route. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, you did uh, you know the BIF review with us, the education uh, with us. Uh, you know, you got your CFP. What was that about a year ago?
2: Yes, yeah, so I I passed the CFP exam in November, and I'm still finishing my experience component though. So, gotcha. um, okay. I should have it by the end this year i should be there excellent
0: and um you have your practice you have a uh, a well-known blog uh and you're kind of focused correct me if i'm if i'm uh, putting words in your mouth but it's kind of based around the the fire principles the financial ind- independence retire early uh and you have uh kind of a lot of information and articles and you know, just have this whole process in place to kind of help people retire early. Can you kind of just expand on that for our listeners a bit?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, FIRE, financial independence, retire early. And I mean, I'm much more concerned with the financial independence part and Mm -hmm. kind of having the options to do whatever you want and less so with the traditional idea of retirement where, you know, you never work again and you're never doing anything productive, Uh, although that's certainly an option. Um, That's kind of the point of financial independence. You could do whatever you want. And so kind of the principles are just that you're living well below your means. So you're kind of taking what most people do over a 40 or 50 year time frame, and you're just compressing that down into 10 to 15 years, uh, 10 to 20 years maybe, um, by saving a much higher percentage of your um, income. And so living well below your means. And I think there is a misconception that it requires extreme frugality. Um, I suppose if you had a very low income, then... To save half of that, you would have to be extremely frugal, um, the way I would define it. Uh, but I mean, it just kind of depends on you know what you want out of life and uh, how much that costs. And so, if you're making, you know, a household of a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, and you can live on half of that, um, then you can still live relatively well. Uh, particularly depending on different parts of the country, which have different costs of living, uh, and still, you know, and I think that's the key because if you're trying to suffer and sacrifice, you're not going to be able to you know, 10 to 15 years sounds short compared to 40 or 50 years. uh, But that's still, you know, figure like if you have a kid, like when they're born to when they're through high school age or something, um, you know, that's a long time to be suffering and sacrificing. So you're not going to stick with that.
0: Yeah. But it's definitely a kind of concept topic just seems to be at the forefront of a lot of people's mind, not just in the financial services industry, but I also feel just kind of in pop culture itself. Cause you know, I'll be looking on like Instagram, YouTube, all, all these like videos come up and I get all these like recommended videos of like, I saved $50,000 by like living in a camper for a year, or, you know, I, I grow my own food and all that. And like, just all of these money saving tips of basically how to kind of scale back on your spending in order to save lots of money. It definitely seems like it's at the forefront of both clients and also kind of the industry's mind right now. because fire is a, uh, you know, a very hot topic in the industry these days.
2: Yeah. And I kind of, I try to maybe put a different spin on it than what you see. Like I know um, there was a big, it was, it was a couple of years now, but it was like fire was featured in the wall street journal. And it's was like, Oh, this is cool. Let's see what this is. And like the headline is like, how do you save two million dollars and retire early? Brown bananas, and I was like, man, that's a lot of brown <laughs> bananas. Like, like what is this lady eating? Like, um, like, so I mean, like to again, I I think the idea of this extreme um, lifestyles, extreme frugality, stuff like that, again, it's just not sustainable for most people. Uh, so, um, like, I really focus on what are the big things. So, like, where most people spend their money is housing, cars, and food, and so. If, you know, if that's what you value and you want to have the biggest house and the fanciest car, um, that's a choice that you make. Um, but, um, you know, that's kind of where most people's money goes. So if you can save on the big things, that's where you start to develop a high savings rate. And then uh, and for some people that will feel like sacrifice. And for other people, like for me, I really don't care about that stuff. Uh, so that was pretty easy. And then once you get those big things right, things like taxes, um, insurance, um, being able to travel for far less because you're using credit card points. There's a lot of things where like just things start snowballing really quickly and your lifestyle actually, you know, you're saving money on things that don't add value to your life. And so it it snowballs really quickly and it, and it becomes quite easy. Um, but you have to kind of get the big things right first.
0: Because you yourself, Chris, you've retired at age 41. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit. You know, what's that about? How did you achieve that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so um, I started my career. I was a physical therapist. And my wife, um, totally unrelated career, um, but as far as like income, like very parallel path through life. And so what we did, we both grew up um, in households that just didn't have a lot of money. You know, we never were used to the fancy house, the fancy car, the big vacations. And so we just kind of valued the security of savings. So we started living off of her salary and using my salary to pay off like her student loans and a small car loan and that was working and so then we used my salary to like save for a down payment on our first house and then that's kind of just the pattern we continued so we always lived off her salary and always used mine for either debt reduction and then eventually investing and you know paying down our house quickly so we were always like kind of saving 50% with no real goal in mind it was just all about security and then 10 years later we made a lot of mistakes like we had no idea what we were doing investing we had no idea what we were doing tax planning uh but even if you make some pretty big mistakes in those regards, Um, you know, 50% savings rate covers up a lot of mistakes. So, you know, we were finding ourselves with a paid off home, paid off cars, you know, a strong six figure portfolio and like figuring like, you know, we might have some options. And that's when I found the fire movement and kind of got into the technical side, Uh, but just kind of fell into it, honestly, because it felt good for us and kind of gave us a sense of security.
0: Uh, That's interesting that uh, instead of it being like 50% of your salary and 50% of your wife's salary, um, You say, you know, your salary went to paying down debts and you live off your wife's salary. Is there like a, a mental reason for that, like a psychological reason for do- is it easier to think about it that way? R- rather, because once the money's in the bank account, it's all kind of mixed together. But yeah, I, I feel like you have a very specific
2: reason for doing it that way. I was just practical. So mm-hmm. um I my wife was actually a year younger than me, but I went to grad school for physical therapy school. So she was working a year ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And she had some school loans and she had bought a car. And so she had a small car loan. And like when we were getting married, like my family debt was like a four letter word, like literally and figuratively. (laughs) And so before we were getting married, I wanted us to not have debt. So I was working part time, like I was doing a PT internship, working at the VA hospital. And so I wasn't making a lot of money, but we were able to live off of her salary. And so I just started everything that I had. I was paying her debt for her. Mm -hmm. And so it was just working. And then it was like a
0: natural development.
2: Yep. Yeah. And then, so then when I actually got a real job, like as a physical therapist and making like an actual, like professional salary, uh, I finished paying off her debt and we just kind of kept, we just had a system in place. And so we yeah. just went with it. Like it wasn't a whole lot of thought or uh, again, like a lot of the stuff we did is kind of just lucked into or fell into just by, mm-hmm. like, there was no plan. Like there was no fire. I don't even know how much I was on the internet back. It was like 2000, 2001. Like I was just Um, I didn't think I read a blog until I started finding (laughs) fire blogs in like 2010 and listening to podcasts and stuff. But uh, yeah, so a lot of it was just kind of what felt good for us. It feels
0: like, you know, fire... Uh, clients and individuals are very kind of like do-it-yourselfers, you know, the DIY crowd. Do you, do you notice that as well, or do you, is there a completely different uh, perspective you have on on people who kind of subscribe to the fire mentality?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely like, from an investing standpoint. I mean, there's definitely a book called The Simple Path to Wealth um, by a gentleman named J.L. Collins, and it really kind of ascribes to like a a John Bogle Vanguard Bogleheads type of simple, low cost investing. Uh, philosophy. And I think that's been pretty widely accepted by a lot of people in the FIRE movement. Uh, and so like, as far as like, are you going to get somebody to pay you 1% to manage your investments? Probably not. Um, but again, I think a lot of people come as they get to that transition point. Like, I think for a lot of people, um, there's a misperception that like, to do FIRE, you came from a lot of money or you made a huge salary. And again, I think my situation uh, is pretty similar. And even my wife's situation more so where she grew up with A family that really struggled with money, and I think for a lot of people, it's just like this feeling of security from having a high savings rate. So when you're going then from saving to drawing down at early retirement, there's a big psychological shift that a lot of people struggle with. Like, how do I actually use this money to enjoy it and create the life I want? And you know, going from this feeling of security to maybe a feeling of scarcity. So there's a big mental hurdle that people need help with. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, again, kind of again using my own situation, like you can make a lot of mistakes and do a lot of things wrong. And so when you're making that shift, like now that you have a lot of money, like I I have a lot of conversations with people like with risk management, both insurance things uh, with like what their portfolio looks like as they're making this transition. Um, So there's a lot of technical things. Um, The tax planning side, there's a lot of neat things you can do on the fire uh, when you're kind of at that point where you're cutting your income. So you have a very low income um, so you can do some things with be it Roth conversions, be it. Uh, getting your health care for very cheap by using subsidies uh if you kind of know how to structure your income and there's some neat things you can do there um, so there's a lot of planning aspects that you that are not really intuitive and are not simple that I think people as they reach that point that that's why they start reaching out for help so yeah there's no there's definitely planning things you can do
0: yeah. I mean, that that's great points. Cause yeah, you know, do it yourselfers tend to be some of the most difficult clients to work with. And, uh, you know, even though, even though you did retire, you, you do still, uh, you know, work with clients a little bit, right. We were talking about kind of before the show that you just recently started with a new firm and it, you, you basically just have the freedom to work with the clients you want to work with. You know, you don't have to take on those, uh, you know, asshole clients just in order to make a paycheck.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so I kind of, I started down this path, like, I I would say at the time I felt like I had a really horrible experience with the personal, like the financial advice industry. Mm -hmm. And I was very anti financial advisor. I was very much, you should be a do it yourself or you can be a do it yourself And so I started reading these blogs, uh, these fire blogs, and it kind of got me fired up. And so I started my own fire blog. And then like, I started talking to real people. People would like start sending me questions. And I was like, like a lot of people actually need help. Like, like, it's not that simple. Uh, And like, Like yes, I wrote a blog for ten years, and I wrote a personal finance book, and eventually, um, last uh, I guess last year, I went through the CFP uh, whole curriculum, and I guess you know again, you can build wealth just by kind of lucking into it, like I said, like you have a high savings rate, and you can make a lot of mistakes, but like to actually know what you're doing, like people need help, and so my thought was, okay, well maybe we do need good financial advisors, and I was kind of like looking for ways with my blog to refer people out, but the people who I thought were doing really good good work. I mean, the problem was they had too many clients and um and so I was kind of figuring this out. And so I kind of thought I would get the CFP and maybe start my own little niche thing. And then I fell into what I'm doing now. But yeah, I think a lot of people need help and um and uh yeah.
0: Yeah, just kind of the natural evolution of the industry, it feels like. Uh mm-hmm. which I think is a good thing. Cause I remember when I started the industry and it was very much, you know, the suit and tie marble lobby with the old oak desks and they're gonna charge you two hundred dollars uh commission to do a trade and you know you're you're gonna take it and you're gonna like it too. <laughs> now we're seeing you know thankfully the industry's moving a lot more in the the other direction of more kind of like service based rather than transaction based which is good for the clients. And I think uh, good for the industry as a whole. Yeah,
1: I, I think it's great that there's all this access to information out there. And I do think it, it changes what the planner's role could be. And and what I'm hearing from, from you, Chris, is that even with the do-it-yourselfers, with with the access to you know the Bogleheads community and, and all of the books and podcasts out there, that they're still coming to planners like you for that second opinion, right? Or for an extra set of eyes or for deeper expertise. And I, I think, that actually speaks to what what I think is going to be a, more of a trend is like, well, yeah, I can get by reading blogs and hearing this stuff, but putting it all together, I think is, is a, a different type of skill. Do you see that in your practice as people coming like, Hey, I have, this is what I know, but I'm, I'm like afraid to take the next step without an extra set of eyes.
2: Yeah, for sure. I, mean, I think a lot of people just want that validation. Uh, but then within that, I mean, there's been virtually nobody who I haven't seen some pretty big red flags of like, are you not like, we got to address this thing. Like, for example, like I had a, it was a fire person. They're looking to retire, like within the next year, Mm -hmm. quite a nice size portfolio, but I'm talking like over half a million dollars in like a crowdfunded, um, like investments where like super risky, Uh, like is (laughs) there like bond portion as like, and like, I, I know like just within the last couple of weeks that one of those platforms actually went bankrupt. And so like, yeah, Uh, So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, just stuff like that, again, like the risk management, uh, again, like when you have a 15-year bear market plus, you know, interest rates are dropping, so bonds are doing great, and then you have cryptos coming out and those things are exploding. Like you can kind of just throw your money at almost anything and look pretty good, um, especially when you're saving 50% and you're throwing a lot of gasoline on that fire. Uh, But then like when you get to that point of drawdown, like you really have to be aware of what you're doing and what the risks are involved. So yeah, having another set of eyes is, is helpful.
1: Great. And I I just have a, a related question to fire, but just being a, a, a parent, you know, I, I'm fully aware of the expenses of of kids that come with having kids and wanting to give them a good way and a good path. Do you see trends within the fire community? I mean, are are they generally people that are, you know couples or just individuals? Are you seeing people with, with families or larger families? I mean, is it, and I I don't mean to be narrow minded here, but I think just from my perspective, my biases, I'm like, wow, how could, you know, it seems like, like we could be frugal, but our kids, there's a lot that they want to do, and, and we want to be able to provide for them. So do you see any trends on that front? Adam's
0: looking like <laughs> jealousy at all the, uh, the dink wads, <laughs> the, the, dual, the dual income uh, with a dog, no kids with a dog. Yeah, for sure.
2: <laughs> I mean, I have one child personally. Um, okay. I, I think most people who, I mean, I don't know, I guess you kind of are drawn to people more like you. But I mean, yeah, there's definitely people with no kids, but there's definitely like, I, I have one, she's a blogger, like they've adopted three kids and they have a family of five. Like, yeah, I mean, there's people of all sorts and stripes doing it. And again, like, so I wrote a book, it's called choose FI it's based, there's a podcast called choose FI and they interview all these different people from within the fire movement. And kind of our concept with the book is to take different stories and kind of like, will it down to like, what are the principles that everybody has in common? And Mm -hmm. so Yeah. I mean, there's people that live in higher cost of living areas. That's going to come with unique challenges. There's people that have bigger families. That's going to come with unique challenges. There's people that chose a career that doesn't have as big of uh, an income that's associated with it. You know, if you're a doctor versus somebody that's a school teacher, like it's going, that's quite a difference in income. And so, but there's people from all of these backgrounds and all of these um, geographic locations and all these family situations that have managed to do it. So you have to kind of like pull the levers and find the way that works for you, but yeah, it's possible.
1: Do you find that with remote work becoming more of a thing that that's opening up opportunities for more people to maybe not be as tethered to one area or another, right? That they can potentially go up into, you know, the middle of the woods, Maine, and still be productive and cost of living is way down. Are you seeing
2: that or hearing that? Yeah, I mean that's actually that's absolutely been my personal experience. Like, yeah, before before remote work was cool, uh, my wife was doing it, so we were living <laughs> in this low cost um, town in Western Pennsylvania, is where we were at on our path to financial independence. But she was working for a company out of Washington D.C. and making a Washington D.C. salary. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Um, again, like there things are constantly changing. So I think like since the pandemic, that's become much more common. That's a big positive. But then we've seen like housing prices spike and just inflation in general. So that's a big negative. So uh, again, the principles are going to stay constant, but the tactics and the uh, circumstances are always changing. So you have to kind of be able to be flexible and uh, apply those principles in a way that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I, I I will say that firsthand where, you know, we're actually looking now for a, uh, <laughs> you know, a lower cost of living uh, part of the country and we're looking and it's like, huh, it's not that much lower cost of living anymore because everyone else has uh, already done it. <laughs> you know, it's like we go, okay, we can go, you know, three hours north into the woods and save, uh, you know, a hundred, two hundred dollars a month on rent. So, is it really worth it anymore?
2: Yeah, and like I always encourage everybody to look like so. Again, housing, cars, and food is kind of like for everybody, like where you start. That's the big expenses most people have, and so like I think sometimes people get caught up so much on housing expenses. But like then, it, then you end up driving for like two hours a day and like how right. much depreciation on your car, how much gas does, and especially when gas prices spike and you're a total victim to that because you don't have control. So like looking at the big picture of how do those things play together, I think is very important too.
0: Uh, one thing we're kind of seeing a lot with especially younger investors is a kind of a sort of, I don't know, pessimism in the air. Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I've heard from multiple people just straight up telling me it's like, why bother saving for retirement? The world's not going to be here when I retire, you know, between global warming and, you know, the geopolitical environment. And it just feels like there's kind of a sense of hopelessness. How do you overcome that? Uh, with individuals and kind of drive home to them just how important this is and how realistic this can actually be.
2: Um, I mean, I think that general hopelessness, I think generally (laughs) getting off of social media, turning off like cable news, like is is just generally good (laughs) advice for all of us. Cause like, like I think when you get out and like experience the real world, like it looks quite different than if you go and you're sitting all all day looking on Twitter or Facebook or Mm -hmm. watching, you know, Fox news or CNN, whatever your flavor is. Uh, so, um, yeah. That's, I guess the first advice, but like kind of, I think what you're kind of getting to is like, I think a lot of people say like standard financial advice is you save 10%. Yeah, most people find that really hard and they don't actually save 10%. And so in the fire community, we're talking about saving 50% as a, like a starting point as a baseline. So how you possibly save 50% when it's so hard to save 10%. And I do think there's a psychological thing with that. And I've written about this. So like So let's just say you're saving 10% and uh, try to bear with me. I'm going to try to not make this horrible, like doing math on (laughs) verbally, but so if you're saving 10% and like, you're trying to get to a, uh, 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 like an emergency fund of six months, right? So if you're, let's say you make a hundred thousand dollars to make the math really simple and you're saving 10%. So you have, you're saving 10,000 and you start at the beginning of the year. So in January, you save 10%, you have 10,000, you're spending 90,000, you have one ninth of one month. So you go all the way out to September. Now you finally have nine ninths or one month saved. And if you play this out to save six months, you're looking at what's that? Fifty four months, like four and a half years, to get just to your six months before you're even investing or anything. I'm
0: already depressed. I'm already. Yes.
2: Yeah, <laughs> now, if you're here. if you're doing this fifty percent, right? So in January, well, first off, you're spending. You're now cutting your spending to five thousand, and you're saving five thousand. So as as of January, you saved your one month, um, and. I think it's intuitive that you're saving five times more. So of course you're going to save faster, but the part I think most people it's not intuitive is you're also cutting down how much it costs. Yeah. So because now you are only spending $5,000 a month, not only do you have five times more, you have a full month's worth of expenses saved. So after now in June, after six months you've saved your full emergency fund and now that money is compounding for you. Now you can start investing it. So I think that hopelessness that a lot of people get is because like, you know, saving for something 40 or 50 years in the future. It's like, yeah, I'll get to it later. And they never start. And so that's why people never hit that. And I think like, again, there is the practical parts of like, how do you actually do it? Do you live in an area? Do you make enough income to, to do that? But if you can wrap your head around it, um, it's just so motivating because you see progress so fast. And again, even like with my wife and I, we didn't even have a specific goal. We didn't have a clue what the heck we were doing, but all of a sudden, man, we have no mortgage anymore. And that feels amazing. And all of a sudden, like, you have a hundred thousand dollars in your brokerage and now you have a half a million dollars. And like, you just see this growing and you're making this progress. It's extremely motivating and it makes you want to learn more. It makes you want to do more. And it's it just, it's, it builds on itself. So yeah, there's definitely a psychological thing if you can get started. And, uh, and I think that, um, it can actually be easier. It sounds weird, but to save 50% than to save 10%. Yeah,
0: yeah. it kind of reminds me, it's like a more extreme version of the net versus gross for the emergency fund is a lot of clients, they, they think they need to save you know, six months of their uh, net income. And it seems like this huge number. And then he pointed is like, well, actually, you only need to save, you know, six months of your gross income. And it's actually this number, which seems a lot more manageable. And it's just like a more extreme version of that, of, you know, if, well, if you're already saving 50% of your income, you know, your emergency fund is now 50% of what it looks like on paper from a net perspective. So, you know, I can definitely see that, that kind of psychological power behind that.
2: And if, if I could even kind of just throw a little bit of nuance in there, but like, yeah, like what you just said about like saving, whether it's net or growth of income. Like I always tell everybody, like what you spend determines how much you need. So whether it's for your emergency fund, whether it's ultimately for retirement and to be financially independent, and that's it's a really, it's obvious when you say it, but like most people don't think that way. We think in terms of our income drives everything. Like if you like read like just simple stuff on you know in the newspapers or on the internet and whatever, everything when it's about retirement, it's like income, income, income. And it's like, no, it's spending, spending, spending. Like you can determine just because you're yeah. a doctor doesn't mean you have to spend like a doctor. Like you can spend <laughs> like a school teacher and retire in five years, like, or, you know, you can live like a doctor and be 70 and still not have a million dollars saved, even though you're making four or $500,000 a year. Uh, it just depends. Like, so like you have the power. And and again, I think empowering people helps. I think like these psychological games and, um, you know, making people see this stuff is very powerful for the right person. Some people just, they don't want to hear it. And that's fine. Like to each their own. Uh, but for the people that are open to it, it's very achievable. Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
0: Now uh, let's kind of talk about kind of more recent times, you know, we've seen inflation skyrocket over the last, you know, two years or so uh, has that made the fire lifestyle that more difficult or is it just kind of one more, you know, kind of bump in the road that you have to get over and you know this crazy high inflation isn't really that big of a deal.
2: Yeah, so like in my writing and when I talk to people like I think people talk about inflation <laughs> and they talk about CPI mm-hmm. and I really talk about like what is your personal rate of inflation? Um mm-hmm. so I think if you're just finding fire like say you're just getting out of school you're 25 and like housing costs, again, housing, cars, and food are the big thing for everybody. So housing costs are through the roof, even like used cars there for a while. You couldn't even find them. Mm-hmm. And when you were, sometimes you're paying more than a new car. Yeah. Like, so it's insane, right? So yeah, it's going to be harder for somebody starting out. Um, I look at somebody like myself, we live in a fully paid off home. We don't have a mortgage um, because we live in an area that's just going crazy. Um, our property taxes went up. We don't have really any control over that. But like, if you have a, you know, a fixed rate mortgage, or if you, have your house paid off. um, It really doesn't matter to you at all with that biggest expense. Whereas if you're a renter or you're just getting into the housing market, yeah, it's a much bigger challenge. So it's really individual there. It's, it's depends where you're at on the path.
0: I guess that's um, what, what I'm kind of getting at. Like it was fire, this just kind of like golden opportunity in time from, you know, like 2010 to 2020, 2021, where if you were just kind of in the right place at the right time, it makes sense. But Now with the, you know, the way the economy is looking and inflation and costs of everything, is it, is it going to be something that's actually possible for people in the future?
2: I think so. I I think again, like, like Adam said, like there's new opportunities um, with being able to work in different areas and work remotely. So maybe you have a job that pays a higher salary, um, but you can live in a lower cost area and work remotely. There's all kinds, there's, again, things are always changing um, I'm gonna give you a little bit different example, but people will say like the fire thing is a bull market phenomenon. and and I touched on that. like there is definitely a wind at our back if you started like like i I graduated from physical therapy school in two thousand and one. So yeah, I had a wind at my back. Um, but that meant I had to start investing in two thousand and one. and if if, you know, if you think about what the markets were doing then, um, that took a leap of faith. Like people were saying, this is crazy, you know? And then I was building for seven, eight years. Like we had a decent sized portfolio when 2008, 2009 came. And that, again, it wasn't easy when like you're seeing, like I've worked for 10 years and been saving up my salary and just dumping it into the stock market. And now all of a sudden it gets cut in half, uh, but we just kept investing through it. And like in retrospect, yeah, it was it was a great opportunity to buy even more when things were down but it wasn't necessarily easy. And a lot of people didn't do that. So um, yeah, I mean, there's always circumstances are always changing and it looks easy uh, in retrospect, but yeah, I mean, you just got to follow the principles and believe in them. And if, if you're living well below your means, if you can find a way to do that um, then this is always possible, but you have to kind of figure out, it's definitely more challenging with housing right now, for sure. For somebody starting, no doubt about that.
0: Yeah, that's definitely tough. I remember, you know, when the market took the dive with COVID, I was looking at my cats like, huh? My balance is the same. It was uh, 10 years ago. I could have just, you know, been living the lifestyle instead of saving for 10 years. And I'd be exactly where I am right now. And that's kind of a a punch in the gut when you realize that that you did everything right. And it still just didn't work out. And that's that's just life
2: sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And like by 2020, I mean, we had much, much more, obviously. And I don't even talk about that so much because it just seemed like that recovered so fast. It, I mean, it, did. it was a real thing. I right. think there was so much else going on in the world. I think a lot of people don't even consider that because i mean like because there were so many bigger things than money yeah yeah Yeah. because
0: because i mean we went down and it recovered really quick but there were still plenty of people who just pulled out of the market and they panic sale and those are the people that really got hit really hard by it you know and Uh my heart goes out to those those people for sure
1: yep yep chris do you think that uh I, i guess even on just the uh the expenses side that fire profile clients are just more in tune with some of the behavioral stuff? I mean, are you seeing their behaviors around money just being uh, more more set, like more awareness of that stuff? Than, I mean, I don't know what your common client would be. But I'd imagine as I'm hearing you talk it through, it just seems like you have to be so hyper focused on like, these are intentional decisions about who I am and, and where I want to spend my money. And I feel like in that is just some awareness of like how my relation to money works is is that true Are you do you see that in your work with fire clients
2: yeah i mean in in my in our book um again it was kind of crowdsourced so i don't even know who to credit with this term it certainly was not my term but like, as I reflected back after I heard it, it was like, this is exactly what we did. But somebody called into the show and they use a the term being a valuist, meaning like you aren't necessarily frugal, like you're not not spending anything or you're not necessarily like a minimalist or you don't want to own anything. But you're really being intentional about spending your money in alignment with your values. So, again, like I have a great friend um, where we live here. And they have people, I mean, their house is beautiful. It's probably costs four to five times what mine costs, but like they have people at their house all the time. Like every weekend they're like, that's what they love to do. And so it's what they value. And I don't judge them at all. I think it's a great, that's a great purchase for them. Whereas Mm -hmm. for us, like I hate, I hate everything about maintaining a house. I hate cleaning. (laughs) I hate doing yard work. I hate fixing things. So like we have a relatively small, relatively cheap house. Um, if we're going to entertain people, I'm happy to go to a restaurant and pay or whatever. Like I just, I don't want to have a big house. Like for me, I don't value that. Uh, again, with cars, some people love it. Like I have a friend who, like he had a BMW back. I and again, I can't even tell you the model because I don't care about cars. But for him, like he was so pumped about this thing. I don't care. I genuinely don't care. Like we're a one car household. Uh, it's over ten years old. It has less than a hundred thousand miles. We just never drive. We build our lifestyle so we don't have to drive. Uh, Again, so like we're lining that up with what we value, but if you truly love cars, by all means, go do it. But I think a lot of people, it's just like, again, I worked, I was a physical therapist. We had a a orthopedic doctor's practice above us and you could just go out back and you could tell who was who. Cause like there was five doctors, there's like a BMW, Lexus. (laughs) uh, I'm trying to, I I haven't been there for 10 years, but I can picture the cars, like a BMW, a Lexus. um, There was a Tesla, another BMW, like just going down the line. And then you have the physical therapist and it's like, the top of the line car that they could possibly afford on that and then like here i am i'm driving this car that i inherited my grandfather was 90 when he bought this car and it was so beat up it had only 10,000 miles when i inherited it off him but i had to get the whole body painted because like everybody was hitting him like you know like and like we finally got <laughs> the tree just ones.
0: jumped right into the middle of the road
2: yeah. and i ended up driving that they called it my co-workers called it the pat mobile they made fun of me because i was driving this old man car but i just didn't care like and so you can save a heck of a lot of money when you don't have a car payment for 10 years. And that's what I did. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, yeah, I was very intentional about it. Cause I don't personally care about that.
1: Is that part of your process with clients now? Do you encourage them or do you have a system to align um, real expenses with their values?
2: I know some yeah. planners out there do that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a conversation we talk about. Like it, sure. it's pretty neat. Like, We've had a couple, like I had a, a couple come to me recently that was like a just recently got a med school and um, they were both uh, physicians assistants. So they were living a kind of a lifestyle on that. And then he went back and went to medical school. And so now they have this huge increase. And so we just talked about that. And I said, you know, like, I'm not saying that you should do this, but like, just think about it. And like, they were very happy. Like they already owned their home and like, there was really no reason to upsize that. Like I see again, kind of, that's my, my sweet spot. Cause I know people in the medical community and like, I've worked with these doctors and, there was one doctor who I was very good friends with. He was an avid golfer and we had this really nice country club where we lived and it made sense for him to be there. He golfed all the time. He loved it. He would entertain people there, but then like these other three doctors in their practice, none of them were golfers, but they all had memberships and it was like super expensive country club. It's like, sure. why would you do that? Just cause you're a doctor. Like you don't have to go join the country club, but like, yeah. that's what they all did. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think for some people that makes sense and for other people, it doesn't. I think, yeah, just lining up where you want to spend your money with your values is mm-hmm. kind of the key. Yeah. Sure.
0: Uh now adam i know you wanted to also get into kind of the more uh technical aspects of fire as well did you want to kind of touch on you know retirements or security all that fun stuff yeah
1: sure um thanks for bringing that up jerry i again i think i'm approaching this chris with more of the quote-unquote traditional retirement timeline and looking at that first and kind of backing into fire and what that could mean i mean you retiring at 41, um, you know, I, when I, I look at that, I think, all right, so Chris Chris gets his his first job, you know, early 20s, that's 20, 20 years of, of full-time pay in, in a job, right, that's going into Social Security. Um, how does that play in? Because, you know, we're looking at the top 35 years of earnings to get to that retirement income is that something that's just a part of FIRE planning? Is accounting for some of that difference with like that social security base from other sources? I mean, are there people that really monitor paying into social
2: security? Uh, how does that work with FIRE? So again, I'll share my personal experience of sure, basically coming at this with ignorance. Like I would read these things that like, oh, uh, social security is going bankrupt and So I was just Mm -hmm. like, we kind of made our plan without social security and we're like, anything we have would be a happy accident. It would be a bonus. Sure. And then as I started helping my parents manage their money and I realized like, wow, like social security is huge for them. Like it's basically covering almost all their expenses. So I started doing more of a deep dive on it and like what I kind of realized for myself. So like I had 16 years of like real earnings and then um, a couple like, you know, working like through school and stuff. So I had about 20 years of earnings. But like I was well beyond that first bend point where like you're getting what is it? I think it's a ninety um, mm-hmm. yep. percent uh, replacement at that point, and then I was well into the second bend point where it's like thir- you're only getting like thirty two percent. And so like I calculated out like if I would have continued working, my my benefit at full retirement age would have been about a thousand dollars difference. And it's like is that really work- worth it to work an extra fifteen years? paying into this because like once I hit that second bend point then you're only getting I think it's is it 15%? I'm just pulling numbers off the top of my head. I think it goes 90 to 32 to 15. Mm-hmm. But like once you get beyond those bend points. So yeah for me it just wasn't that I mean yeah I'm definitely leaving money on the table from social security benefits, but when you look at what you're getting proportionally, like I got the biggest return. And then I'm well into that second one. So I have a, a fairly healthy um assuming things don't change and, and I anticipate things will get cut to some degree unless something Drastically changes, but uh, whatever we have, I mean, again, I uh, we kind of planned without Social Security, so whatever we have, and I, I find that's pretty common. And I'm actually kind of encouraging people to look at those benefits because they are, you know, they're not huge, but they make a quite a difference.
1: How about on the healthcare side? So you leave an, an employment situation where you have employer provided healthcare. Uh, you're younger than Medicare age. What do you do in that gap?
2: Yeah. So I think um, there, there's a number of options. I think for most people, the best option, in my opinion, is just using the exchanges. Mm-hmm. And then um, hopefully uh, you have some um, variability between having you know, uh, taxable accounts, which you're going to have to have some taxable money to get through uh, and then, you know, maybe some Roth money to pull out in certain years. And then once you get to like the sixties, um, but before Medicare, like you can start using your, um, tax deferred accounts and you can kind of build your income in a way that's keeping your, um, keeping your taxable income relatively low and really optimizing those, um, um, subsidies. And kind of one thing that I talk a lot about with people is maybe paying, a. and this is the hard thing. It is hard to plan because you're, talk about social security, like the healthcare thing is really hard because like these laws, they've changed just since the pandemic, they've changed drastically like uh, in the last couple of years. And they're set to, as they are now, expire, I think in 2025. So who knows what happens after that. But um, I keep thinking like this could all go away, like all these subsidies. Uh, but to this point, they've only gotten more generous. So um, we, ha- we just have to kind of plan on what we have. But uh, what we know is as of right now, um, your the maximum amount that you can pay is a percentage of your income, but mm-hmm. the maximum amount of your premiums goes up and up and up as you get older. And so those, those subsidies get much more valuable, like between 60, 61 than they were if you're 40 or 41. So I would encourage people to You know, even if you have to pay a little bit more now, um, kind of structure your income in a way that you can really optimize those subsidies as you get older because they become so much more valuable. Uh, Yeah. Again, with the risk that you know all of this can change because it's just so hard. So, in my opinion, from a technical side, um, from a psychological side, I think making the shift is the biggest challenge. But from a technical side, healthcare is because you're planning, really not knowing the rules even two years out, and you're planning for, for my case, like a twenty-year horizon, and it's extremely hard. So you're just Um, a lot of it quite frankly is just my best guess
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's good very very interesting stuff Um, final final more technical question and then we we could get get back to some some others that we prepared um so on the retirement income side so you just kind of laid out general map right we want to draw down uh taxable accounts right because we have that benefit of that that 0% bracket, like right? maybe going into 15% for a slice of it. Um, then we have our, our our coveted Roth accounts. But what if someone hadn't prepared in that way? Because what what I see a lot of people doing is, well, I am saving for my retirement. I'm maximizing my contribution to my 401k, right? Before meeting with an advisor or planner like you. Uh, they're younger than... 59 and a half, right? What what do you do then? I I know, I know there's some strategies out there, but I'd love to hear firsthand from, from you being in this community. Like, what do you do in that situation? Someone has a ton of tax deferred stuff. Um, How do you generate an income stream?
2: Yeah. So I would say, first, I I think that's relatively rare that you would get to that point. Mm -hmm. um, Only because like, if you're truly saving for like, if you have somebody that's just retiring a little bit early, like in their mid to late fifties or early sixties, that they might have everything in tax deferred and that's possible. But like, if you're having like a fire person like myself, mm-hmm. uh, so we we were maxing out tax deferred accounts, then we were maxing out Roths, but then we still had a hefty savings into our, into our taxable accounts just because sure. you only have so much space, um, with being regular, you know, employees with, you know, limits, um. But, you know, even if you get to that point, if that's your only option, you have everything in tax deferred accounts. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely ways. I mean, one thing you could just pay the penalty and depending sure. what your tax rate was, it even with a 10% penalty, that might still be cheaper. Um, mm-hmm. um, but then there's also things like, you know, your 72T, where you can take the, um, what's it called? Substantially equal periodic payments and yep. you can set that up. Um, so there's ways to get your money out. So there, there's always a way. Um, it may not be ideal. And ideally you would be thinking about these things 10 or 15 years ago when you're in that accumulation phase. And I'm a big fan of having diversification, not only between stocks and bonds, not only between domestic and international, but having some money in tax deferred, some in taxable and some in Roth, because they're all valuable and they all have certain features. Uh, but you know, if you get to 60 and you have $2 million and it's all in tax deferred, that's a heck of a lot better position to be in than a lot of people who get to 60 and they're like, <laughs> I haven't saved anything for retirement yet. so. <laughs> I would, I would take the, uh, I would take that person (laughs) any day of the week. Yeah. (laughs) And even 60, you could actually take out, but let's say 55 and you're in that situation. Sure. Yeah.
0: So kind of closing it out, uh, Chris, you know, we talked about how it was kind of easier to be in the fire mindset during a bull market and, you know, things are changing now. Is is there a discussion in the community about, you know, kind of the wish list that, you know, people want to see as far as kind of, you know, maybe societal changes, economic changes, like, are people just hoping for another bull market? Are people hoping for like, Universal healthcare to make it easier, housing regular. Like, what, what's on kind of like the fire community's wish list for changes in the environment that would just make being a fire person a lot easier?
2: Well, first, I, I'll just say, like, as I talk to people outside of the fire community about fire stuff, I think like we're seen as like this monolith of like extremely frugal people who all were <laughs> tech worker engineers, <laughs> I, like all did everything right. Like, so I would say, like, in general, like the fire community is pretty diverse yeah well um, just
0: just enjoy i would I, was, I would kind of like the equivalent i have it is like I, I i view fire people as kind of almost like financial preppers like you know like the <laughs> okay. doomsday preppers who have like the bunker with the food and water rations it's like like fire to me it kind of equates to like the financial industry version of that
2: <laughs> uh, um as far as like what would make things easier i again i think like if you're just starting um a drop in housing prices would be amazing yeah.
1: right <laughs> and here. A drop in the stock market would be amazing because <laughs> then
2: you're buying stuff cheaper. Uh, whereas somebody like myself, um, I would love to see a bull market for the next 10 years. And so I don't have to worry about much of anything because I already have a bunch of assets built up. And if they grew a lot over the next 10 years, then I wouldn't really have to worry for the rest of my life. And I'd never have to think about this stuff. So uh, it really kind of depends where you're at. Um, I think for everybody, I think just for our country in general, I wish we had a better healthcare system. I think, um, mm-hmm. If we had a better healthcare system, I would probably still be practicing as a physical therapist. I hated our system. And I just, I reached the point where I just didn't want to be practicing in it. I, I couldn't stand it. And I got out and it was like the bane of my existence. And then as an early retiree, that's like the biggest challenge. And the bane of my existence continues to be, we have no kind of stability. Like we talked about, like, we don't even know what, we don't really have a system. We have, we just wing it and go for a couple years at a time and figure this out. And it's broken. So I wish we had a different healthcare system would be my answer. I wish that was different. Um, not just for fire people, just for people in general.
0: Yeah. And is I guess that kind of is a little bit of a tangent is, would it be easier to move to another country? Because, I, you know, I've talked to many fire individuals, uh, you know, one person was a lawyer and one day they just walked in, they quit their lawyer job and they moved to Barcelona, Spain. Because, you know, the free healthcare, lower cost of living. And they were just like they were able to practice fire without even trying because they had, you know, built up some assets from their lawyer career. And then the cost of living in Spain was so much lower, not having to worry about health. And it just, it just was like they were able to do it without even trying by just moving locations.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think um, so like there's I think this came from Tim Ferriss's for our work week. There's this concept of geo arbitrage where like you're moving to a lower cost of living area and your money will go further. Um, I don't know, like I, my kind of thought on that is like generally low cost of living areas are lower cost for a reason because uh, <laughs> like there are certainly advantages of some areas like with healthcare. Um, but like, again, like I personally would not advise living somewhere cause it's affordable. I would advise figuring out where you want to live, what kind of place, and then making it, finding a way that you match the finances with where you actually want to live. Like for my personal situation, it was a big help for us to save. We, we lived in a very low cost of living area in Western Pennsylvania. It was kind of a depressed area. Housing costs were cheap. Um, being a healthcare worker, it was kind of rural. So like you can leverage that because it was hard to recruit people to that area. So I can make more money. Uh, but then where we live now, we live in the mountains of Utah. I'm a skier and uh, ski towns are notoriously expensive. So we did the opposite of what you're like, quote unquote, like supposed to do for, to be a fire person (laughs) and geo arbitrage. We actually moved to a place where housing is about three times more expensive. Uh, But we looked at like, what lifestyle do we want? And then we kind of narrowed it down to like, you know, like we know we wanted a ski town and most of those are pretty unaffordable. So we kind of got it down to like three or four. And then we looked at like, we're, we have a young child. We don't want her to be pigeonholed into only being able to do that. And so that eliminated a couple other ones. And so it kind of drove us to here and we're extremely happy here. um, But it's, it was more expensive than where we came from. We could have we could have fired on a lot less um, and been a lot more secure with lower cost housing, but then it's not the lifestyle we want to live. So uh, we're, we're kind of living the life we want. Yeah. I guess my main takeaway
0: is it's all about balance, you know, <laughs> no silver bullet answer.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, again, like the, the, like the idea that like, it's this extreme lifestyle, again, I just, I can't drive that home enough. Like it's just not sustainable. Like if you're, if you hate your life, then what's the purpose of living on $20,000 a year to not work, 'Cause you hate your job to go live a life that you hate. So like you have to find the the balance of making it sustainable. And um and so yeah, that's absolutely the key.
0: Yeah. And I guess I think that's that's probably why people associate it is it's because it's so extreme. It's kind of what grabs the headlines and the attention. You know, we all hear about the people who converted an old school bus into an apartment and then they meal prep, you know, three months of food at a time so that they can have meals for a dollar twenty a meal. And you know, that that just really extreme frugal living is is what people think of. But it definitely seems like that is not the the majority of people living the fire lifestyle. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and even uh again like going back to that idea of a valuist. Um I think like so I've seen people like I um I watched one thing it was on ABC News I believe um cuz they actually contacted me and I didn't respond in time. So I watched who was on it and it was it was a blogger. They do the blog called Go Curry Cracker and it's it's a fab- it's, it's a goofy name, but it's a fabulous blog and they have some really cool tax stuff um where um just that I have cited in my work a bunch and Really, really intelligent uh, tax planning strategies, and um, talk a lot about like low cost investing. But when they're on ABC News, it was talked about like they made their own soap and they made their own wine, and it looks like these—they look like a couple of meth heads honestly because they have these masks (laughs) on. It's like it was something that had probably one percent of the impact on them being able to retire early. But that's what was like the focus on the ABC News, kind of like the whole brown bananas thing, like. I don't know that person that was in that story, but um, I'm sure that uh, Brown Bananas was maybe a quarter of a percent of how she got to saving $2 million. But that was like the headline in the, and so like you always have to take all these things with a grain of salt when you're when you're hearing these You
0: stories. also know all those people are bad at the, you know, the theory of the scale of economics because they're like, yeah, I make my own soap and I save like $3 per bar of soap. But <laughs> it's like, yeah, but you spent $500 on like the machining and like all the materials. So it's like, are you actually like, you need uh-huh. to make, you know, x number bars of soap before you even break even—is it actually worth it? You know, sometimes yes, the scale yes. of economics <laughs> just doesn't make sense.
1: <laughs> hey, uh, Chris, real quick before we we head out, um, just want to make sure that our listeners are aware of where to learn more just about you, about the practice that you're affiliated with, about your books, about your blog. Would you mind just sharing
2: all of those with us? Yeah. So I'm I'm not great with my marketing thing. So I'm kind of all over the place. So um, my home on the internet, my personal home is called Can I Retire Yet? And it's the blog I've been writing at for the last five years. The blog itself has been around for like 10 or 11 years. uh, So we're pretty established. And we really write to an audience that's looking to make the transition, whether it's early retirement or just cutting back, doing like an encore career, or we have actually a lot of traditional retirees, but that's kind of the audience we write to there. I've also written a book in in partnership with the Choose FI podcast, and it's called Choose FI, Your Blueprint to Financial Independence. And that's really more targeted to people early on the path. And again, it's kind of like looking at the principles um, that anybody can apply by taking a bunch of people's stories and kind of narrowing it in. And then just within the last six, eight months now, I guess, uh, I started working with Abundo Wealth, which is a um, advice only, um, low cost uh, financial planning firm. And I'm doing some part time work with them. And uh, you can also find me there. So I'm, I'm kind of all over the place, but uh, that's uh, depending on what you're looking for. That's where you would find me.
0: You're very busy for a retired uh, individual. <laughs> well, that's good. This is but true. Stay busy.
2: <laughs> it, it's hot here. I need something to do like between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. when I can't get out of the house. So.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Uh, this was great. I certainly learned a lot about uh, fire and you know, how to apply it and just kind of what the whole community looks like that, you know, really shed some light on it. So thank you.
2: It's a, it's a pleasure catching up with both of you. And uh, this was totally unsolicited, but I will say this, like having gone through your guys' program, um, it's, I'm happy to do anything I can to help you guys, like, kind of, like, in any way, like create some content and get the message out uh, because you guys have done so much to help me. Like your program is awesome with BIF, particularly the review. I I had a great experience. And so, yeah, happy to do anything I can. And anytime you guys want to connect, feel free. Yeah,
0: definitely. Thank you, Chris. Well,
2: thanks, Chris. Definitely
0: have to set some stuff up in the future. Uh Well, awesome. Thanks for joining us all this week, everyone, and uh, we will see you all next week. We're going to be continuing our fantasy draft series uh, that we started. So bring your A game, Adam. I got my my picks lined up. I am ready to make the greatest CFB team uh, out there. Uh, and for those of uh, you listeners who are thinking about sitting for the November exam, uh, enrollment is open for the BIF review. So if uh, you want to come on down, definitely get in contact with us. We'd love to have you in class with us as we uh, start easing into November.
1: Good stuff. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Jerry. And uh, Jerry, I just I just got to say to you and Mike, look out. I've had <laughs> my draft team hard at work. <laughs> I called in the top insurance minds for oh, this next episode. I think so. My three picks are going to be Earthshadow.
0: <laughs> I think actually both of us need to be worried, Adam, because Mike was the insurance agent for thirty years. <laughs> like this is Mike's wheelhouse. This next episode, so yeah. maybe we need to form an alliance to uh, to take yeah, Mike yeah. down.
1: <laughs> You Know what? We'll just start trading future picks to one another and uh, and we'll work something right, out there. Sounds A couple good. kickers, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> awesome! Awesome. Well, thanks everyone, and we will see you all next week.